Well, good morning once more. Please turn in your copy of the scriptures with me to Acts chapter 1 as we continue along here in Luke's second book, part 2 of his work for Theophilus. We'll be covering verses 6 through 11 today. And so after Luke reminds us that you had heard from me, John the baptized, John the John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The disciples come together. And this is what we read. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's the word of the Lord there. For everything that is not straightforward about this passage, the main point is mercifully straightforward. And that Christians should be spirit-empowered witnesses to the risen, ascended Christ as they trust in his return. Okay? Christians should be spirit-empowered witnesses to the risen, ascended Christ as they trust in His return. Luke starts his account, properly speaking here, after the prologue by recording the very last question the disciples ever asked Jesus. And then accordingly, he introduces his second book here by giving Jesus' final words. His final words. So we need to listen. Certainly this is important. The disciples have assembled together on the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. We don't learn that from verse 6. We learn it from verse 12. If you look down there, that's where they depart from. Verse 12, when they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, that's where they had assembled. And the question that they ask is a combination of curious. It's a bit confusing. It's compelling. And to say that we start things with a bang from a theological point of view is a tremendous understatement. This question that they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We have many people in our church with different theological backgrounds. You come out of different churches and you, even those who haven't are probably not surprised to hear that this singular verse has occasioned hundreds of pages 
of commentary and art, probably thousands, surely thousands over the years, hundreds, thousands of pages of commentary, all sorts of arguments about um, why the disciples asked this question exactly, what, what they meant by it. What does it imply, if anything, for the future of ethnic Israel? There's arguments about whether Jesus' answer is a correction or merely a diversion, and on and on and on. What are we to make of this? When they come together, they ask Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Well, given the language, particularly the language of restoration, which is extremely prominent in the Old Testament and in Jewish expectations for Israel's future in light of the promises, particularly here, the disciples are undoubtedly asking if Jesus was going to bring about the return of the, of the nation of Israel to geopolitical prominence over against its enemies, its Roman occupiers, with their accordance with their understanding of the Old Testament and the giving of the Spirit, which was to happen, as we read, not, not too many days from then. Okay? Not many days from now. So, so that the restoration of God's people and their vindication among the nations and the, that the Messiah would bring the Spirit would happen in the latter days together with, um, I, I mentioned the Spirit in Joel chapter 2, resurrection, Daniel chapter 12, kind of all of it happening in it at once. That was the idea. That was the expectation. When you go back and read the Old Testament prophets, that's what it looks like too. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be the pouring out of the Spirit. The Gentiles are going to be blessed. Messiah is going to become. All the restoration is going to happen. And we're going to have a new heavens and new earth and just all of it. All of it was going to happen roughly at the same time. I'm not saying it all was over in one moment, but the whole thing would progress in one sense as a unit at the same time. And so we can kind of have sympathy with their question. It's a very Jewish question to ask. It was, it was, we can have deep sympathy. All of the debate about Acts 1-6 surrounds whether or not the disciples asking the question in the first place demonstrates that there is, in fact, a geopolitical future for Israel. For the nation of Israel just like every Jew was expecting, and just like you and I would likely expect if we read the Old Testament and never read the New Testament. If we just read the Old Testament like a Jew, the Hebrew Scriptures, that's what they're talking about here. That's what they're asking about. Of course, there are really kind of two sides here. Those who say that the question implies that it does uh, uh, those who say that it does imply there is a future for ethnic Israel in a geopolitical return to Jerusalem kind of sense, and I'm not talking about a, uh, a, a, conver a, a conversion of Jewish people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about a geopolitical return, just like you would have expected in the Old Testament. Okay, The folks who say, yes, their question clearly implies that, point to at least three things. They say, well, Jesus had been instructing, it says, on the kingdom of God, for a period of over 40 days, okay? And so their question is on point. Their question's on track. Number two, what they would point to is that Jesus, in his reply, he doesn't tell them they were wrong. 
He doesn't say, eh, you're, you know, that's never going to happen. And so, you know, he, he could have done that, but he doesn't. And three, the Old Testament would lead us to believe that they are correct, that that uh, again, if you go back and read the Old Testament, I'm going through Jeremiah right now. If you go through anyone who has spent any amount of time in the prophets can tell you, yes, what, what, what it sure sounds like when you go through it, at least on first pass, if you're not trying to do it, it's it just, listen, this is going to be, Jerusalem's going to be restored and the temple is going to be rebuilt and sacrifices reinstituted and all the rest of it, okay? As the, as, and then all the nations will come into Jerusalem and come up to the house of the Lord and Israel will be at the center of it all. And that's how the nations are going to be blessed by the resurgence of geopolitical Israel and the prominence particularly of Jerusalem. That's kind of, that, so the first view is like, yeah, see, they're on track there. Second group of folks say, the disciples' question is misguided. They're still not understanding. They're still not understanding. Here's what they would point out. Number one, they would say, listen, we have no record of what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God over 40 days. First of all, he wasn't with them constantly. He appeared to them and taught about it. But there's no reason, to th we don't have any explicit reason for thinking that he taught something about the kingdom of God that was more developed or more nuanced than he had taught uh, before the resurrection that they didn't understand either. That's why James and John were saying, can I sit at your right hand? It's like, okay, so maybe he did. did but do we have reason to say that he gave some extra special uh, information about it? No, we don't. Furthermore, they say if Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom in a more developed or nuanced manner, it would be a strange thing to omit a detail such important as when it was actually going to happen, you know? So they point to say if he was teaching that there was going to be a geopolitical resurgence of Israel and there had been this uh, uh, elaboration of a, a kingdom of God in the post-resurrection teaching, it would be odd that he just forgot to mention when it was actually going to happen. They also point to the fact that there is very obviously, there is very obviously surprise and there is confusion and there is debate about how the Gentiles are supposed to fit into things in the book of Acts. And when we get, as we walk through this, that becomes very, very clear. The Holy Spirit is going to go to the Gentiles? Do they need to become Jews? There's a lot of, it's very clear that they don't have all the answers right then about the nature of the kingdom of God and how it's going to be constituted and what's supposed to be required. In other words, they have a lot of learning to do. But they would cite, again, Christ had not yet ascended, the Spirit had not yet been given, and so some of those misgivings are justified. And finally, the book of Acts, they would say, suggests that by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, the so-called Jerusalem Council, uh, the Jewish leaders understood the restoration promises to Israel to have been truly fulfilled, even as they were on being fulfilled in an ongoing manner. That is why um, you're going to have James stand up and quote Amos 9 about rebuilding the tent of David. Okay? So for now, that, that for now, all I will say is that I very strongly favor the second view. And I don't, I don't care to provide an apologetic for why or walk you through the reasons, because I think it will become clear as we go through the book of Acts. So my argument for preferring the second view, that the disciples are off base here, is going to come as we work through the book, and instead of me um, giving it to you now. But here's what's very here's the most crucial part: the disciples thought that the restoration of all things, and certainly including, perhaps even primarily including, from their view, 
Israel and Jerusalem was going to happen in conjunction with the giving of the Spirit, which again is exactly what you would have thought if you read the Old Testament and nothing else. Okay? That's what you would have thought. What they clearly, and certainly everyone has to agree with this, what they were clearly wrong about is that there was in fact going to be a very large gap that they were not aware of between the giving of the Spirit, Joel chapter 2, and the restoration of all things. Okay? That is what everyone, I hope, can agree on. And I think the conclusion that I said I favor will be vindicated as we work through the text itself. Far more compelling in one sense, though, is Jesus' own reply to their question. Jesus' own reply to their question about when Israel will be restored. He said to them, out of all the things he could have said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He tells them that the timing of the restoration of all things, which again in their mind would have included all of the elements of the promise, spirit, kingdom, resurrection, Messiah reigning from Jerusalem, the Gentiles being blessed as a result, you know, the timing of the, the culmination of all things, which is what they were thinking when they asked the question, is not really your concern. Not your concern. It's not been made known to you. It's not going to be made known to you. It's just not going to, it's not something that you should be concerned about. God and his sovereignty has appointed, he has fixed by his sovereign authority one day. We will all wake up, well, maybe not us, but the people at that time will wake up. There will be one last day where the sun rises in its ordinary kind of way. And then there will be one last historical day like this, and then all things will be made new. But we don't know which day that is. We don't know which day that is, and that's very consistent with what Jesus says in the gospel, right? That nobody knows the day. You're not going to know. If someone says they know the day, don't even give them the time of day because nobody knows. Nobody knows. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He understands their question about the restoration of the kingdom in light of how he certainly understood them to be asking it, which culminated, which, excuse me, uh, which, uh, which would have come about at the end. And he's saying, listen, it's not for you to know that. However, however, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What kind of power exactly? Well, there's discussion about it. We can't have all the discussions, sadly, but it seem, the text seems to clarify that the power is a power to witness. It is a power to witness to the resurrected, ascended Christ. It is a power to witness to the gospel of the kingdom. And on the heels of their question in verse 6, we have to remember this. This is critical. The disciples almost certainly understood this witness to be a witness to other Jews as, as the people of God were gathered in. Old Testament language again. This is the remnant. Okay? They are thinking Jewishly 
at this point. Very Jewishly. Oh, we're going to be a part of the end gathering at the end right here. Here we are. We're going to be reaching Jews in this place and that. They almost certainly at this point did not understand that the mission would include directly evangelizing Gentiles who would also receive the Spirit. Now we learn very quickly that that is not what Jesus is communicating as we go through the book of Acts. That is almost certainly what they would have thought at that exact moment hearing those things, particularly in light of the question that they just asked and their understanding of the Old Testament uh, at this point, and that's critical, at this point in their theological development. They, as representatives of many to come, are to be my witnesses, he says, that is, witnesses to Jesus, and then he lays out a roadmap, kind of a witnessing theological blueprint, gives us a theological geography for how the witnessing to him is going to go. And where it goes is it's going to start in Jerusalem and move into Judea and then Samaria and then to the end of the earth. And in fact, that is how the witness goes. You start there in Jerusalem, moves into the areas of Judea by Acts chapter 8. We're in Samaria. Acts chapter 9 gives us Saul. Saul takes the gospel beyond Jewish and half Jewish, you might say, spaces. What about the end of the earth, though? The ends of the earth, what does that mean? This is one of those seminary issues I don't want to bore anyone with, but what, what exactly counts as the end of the earth? The reason it's, the question's a meaningful one is because when you think of earth, you either think of a map, a mercator projection, or a globe. And we can be 100% certain that that's not what anyone would have thought when they heard that word in the first century. 100% certain that that's not what anyone would have thought when you said the end of the earth. And in fact, in extra-biblical sources, people, go, people who are living at the end of the earth are almost always understood as living kind of at the edge of the, what we would call something like the known world or at the edge of known civilization and not literally to the boundaries of like the entire globe or something like that. There have been people who try to say, well, the ends of the earth here really mean the gets to Rome, the gospel gets to Rome, because that's what we see at the end of Acts. Yeah, that's the center. <laughs> it would be like at that point, the center of the earth, not the edge of the earth, okay? Rome would definitely not be the ends of the earth getting to Rome. Some have suggested Spain. Some people give an ethnic interpretation here. Ends of the earth doesn't mean anything geographical. It just means Gentiles. That's what it means. But both here and in extra-biblical literature, the end of the earth means functionally something like all of the known world, which is not would not be, to be clear, nearly as large as the world is now, okay? But it would be something like the end of the known world, and this is consistent with the Great Commission that Jesus gave, that the gospel was going to expand as far as there were people groups, nations, ethnes. And so that's the blueprint for the apostolic witness. That's the blueprint. Witness to Christ and the power of the Spirit. And it's this mission and not the timing of the end, which is what the apostles should be preoccupied with. That's what should be their concern. Luke writes, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So, so, 
This is it. This is the moment right here. This is the definitive hinge between the earthly ministry of Jesus and the heavenly ministry of Jesus. This, right here. This is the culmination of what I would suggest is oftentimes just glossed as the resurrection. Okay, you have resurrection, then you have demonstration appearances, then you have ascension. I think generally it's just glossed as the resurrection because most people aren't talking about the 40 days before the ascension. But to be clear, you have the, the ascension as the culmination of the resurrection. This word that he was taken up also suggests, the, the passive voice there, it suggests that the cloud was kind of the thing supporting him. So to put it in crude terms, it's kind of like the vehicle. He was riding it, the cloud, he was riding it up, which of course evokes some interesting imagery from the Old Testament about a God who rides the clouds and how Jesus will return. We can only speculate about that. I, I, don't, I don't want to get into the weeds um, on that one. But here's what we know. That this would have been an incredible scene. This would have been such an incredible scene, in fact, that the question that comes next sounds like a very dense question. <laughs> or a question asked by a person, or two people in this case, who... Uh, whew, are out to lunch. But let me just, before we get to that though, let me pause one final time to mention the significance of the ascension in the economy of salvation. Okay? When Jesus rose from the dead, he was never witnessed in glory alongside the Father. He, no one ever saw Jesus go up anywhere. Okay? He appeared to people, but he never, no, none of the apostles ever saw him go up. Go up to ascend to the Father's right hand. The ascension allows the apostles to see that Jesus is not simply going away again, but that in fact he is ascending to heaven to the right hand of God. Second, the style of Jesus' departure very clearly clarifies that there would be no more post-mortem appearances. Okay? Contrast this with how he disappears in uh, you know the the account on the Emmaus road where he and he teaches the disciples everything concerning him in the scriptures and right when they figure it out you know he disappears from them that's not like this this is protracted this is not just a disappearing act this is he does end up disappearing certainly but it's not him just disappearing in front of their faces he is taken and he ascends and we can imagine it happened slower rather than quickly because they were standing there looking at it as some kind of process it, this this marked the end of any more appearances and in fact would be the very last time any of the 12 these these well I say the the 11 at this point would uh would see would see Christ in the flesh as such we have the definitive shift from belief in Christ being raised based on sight, okay? Belief in Christ, the resurrected Christ being based on sight. We have it shifted to based on the eyewitnesses of the apostles, okay? Now they're the faithful witnesses to it because no one else is going to see Jesus like that with one very shocking, very bright, very awesome exception. Okay, in the book of Acts. But, but this, this marks the shift from faith in Jesus being there he is raised to the testimony of the eyewitnesses who saw him raised. Right here, this marks that shift. And then finally, the ascension is necessary uh, for the sending of the Spirit. Jesus clearly indicated that unless he went away, the Spirit and the Helper 
would not come, who was going to teach them, and he was going to remind them, and he was going to guide them this spirit of Christ, this spirit of Jesus, as Luke will say. And so, although it doesn't get much press, the importance of the ascension as the culmination of the resurrection and a necessary precursor to the sending of the Spirit, it's hard to overestimate how important this is in terms of how everything works in the economy of salvation and redemption. It really, truly is. An unascended Christ is an, means an unwitnessed church. An unascended Christ means an unwitnessed church. I don't have a Spirit that goes and empowers this witness that's being discussed here. The ascension. And so as they are gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. And so if you've ever been watching something, or maybe you're watching a movie, maybe you're watching something in the sky, and, and, and someone kind of stands beside you, and you know, you're not really paying attention, and they like say something, you know, you you, you freak out. Oh, I, I I didn't even know you were there. That's something like what happened here. Then I don't say they scared them, but uh, the idea is here they are paying attention, watching Jesus ascend into heaven, and then here here appear these men. Now they're described as men, but because of how they just appeared, and because of the description of their white robes, which is probably more telling about it's not just the color, but of their rows, the kind of the glory with which they presented themselves. These are angels who appear. These are angels who appear to them. And they ask this question, but I do want to point out, because one, one commentator points this out, and I thought it was fascinating. He said, at this point and from now on, unlike every other example in the gospel, people are no longer, um, well, in the epistles... It, People are no longer afraid and have fear at the appearance of angels. Okay? Up until now, angels show up, what happens? Ah! Right? That is, just, that is not what happens here. And it doesn't seem to be what continues to happen. There are a ton of examples. There aren't a ton of examples. But it's worth pointing out, something has changed. Something has meaningfully changed in the way God works, in the way God works through these angels and kind of how they minister, these ministering servants. And we get a, a little bit of a theology of angels here teased out in the New Testament. But so they ask, why are you standing there staring into heaven? But it's a rhetorical question. It's not like they didn't know what these guys were looking at. They're, they're making a point. They're saying, guys, why are you looking on? Why are you looking on? Like... You didn't know this was going to happen. Why are you looking on like you don't know how this ends? And again, to appreciate the ascension and kind of where they were at mentally in this moment, you just, just imagine yourself for a second. You're there with Jesus. You've just asked the question, are you, Jesus, standing in front of us about to restore the kingdom to Israel? You said the Spirit's about to come. Okay, so does that mean that you are about to restore the kingdom to Israel right over here in Jerusalem? And all the, oh, we're going to crush the nations and the Gentiles are going to come in and all the rest of it. Are, are you going to do that now? And instead of doing that, what happens is the ascension. The ascension happens. 
Have you, so if you've ever had a plan, like have you ever had a plan for how things were going to go in your head? You know, and then something happened and the plan was just gone. Okay. It just disappeared. That's what happened here. Okay. Literally the plan disappeared into heaven. The plan left them. The plan left. And so we can plausibly imagine teary-eyed stares and bewilderment that this is happening. And that's the mindset the angels are addressing here. What, what, are, you, what are y'all doing staring into heaven? Shocked. If you're astonished, he, he's going to come back the same way that he went. He's going to come back for the, the same way that he went. We don't want to press the details too hard here, by the way. There certainly will be some similarities. You know, it will be decisive. His return will be certainly amazing. It will be unexpected, just like the ascension was unexpected from the standpoint of the disciples. But there are at least two crucial differences, uh, both of which really are made possible because of the ascension in the church. And one is that Jesus' return will not be just witnessed by 11 guys. Okay? But by the whole world. There will be no one who's like, oh, I had no idea Jesus returned yesterday. What happened? Um, it's not, not the case. It won't be this local event like the ascension was. Second huge difference is Jesus ascended by himself, but Scripture makes very clear that when he returns, he will return with a host. He will return with a great multitude. Those who have died in Christ, angels, it's going to be amazing. I have no idea what to think, Pastor. It will just be breathtaking how he will, how he will return. And in this return, he will make all things new. John Stott summarizes this tension here. Their question, his answer, the ascension, really, really well. Let me read you this quote from Stott. He says, There was something fundamentally anomalous about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to heaven, which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world, which needed him. They were not to be sky scanners, It is the same for us. Curiosity about heaven and its occupants. Speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment. An obsession with times and seasons. These are aberrations which distract us from the God-given mission. Christ will come personally, visibly, and gloriously. Of that we have been assured. Other details can wait, Stott says. Meanwhile, we have work to do in the power of the Spirit. We have work to do in the power of the Spirit because Christians should be Spirit-empowered witnesses to the risen, ascended Christ as they trust in His return. I want to make one point here. One point. And that is the expectation of faithful witness in Holy Spirit power. There is an expectation of being faithful witnesses to Christ. And I understand that sermons about evangelism 
make people feel guilty. You know, they always say if you want to make people feel guilty, preach on prayer, tithing, and evangelism. All right? Well, I don't have any desire to make anyone feel guilty, but the text says what the text says. We believe in the resurrection of Christ because of the eyewitness of the apostles passed down from generation to generation, inscribed in the Holy Scripture, that Christ has come in the flesh. He's died. He's risen. He's ascended. He's sent the Spirit. He's called for repentance and faith, and He's promised eternal life. He's promised eternal life. And so there is one very obvious application, which is do you testify to the good news about Jesus to anyone at all, ever? <laughs> you know? I mean, trying to the lowest hanging fruit possible, like in any way. And a lot of people's answer is that outside of my own home, the answer is no. And certainly, your home is your first mission field. I want that to be, I want to be very clear about that. Making disciples in your own home, okay? That is your primary mission field. There can be no mistaking that. And yet at the same time, there is also no mistaking that Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth cannot be understood to mean to the end of your driveway. Okay? That is also equally clear. So there's a straightforward challenge to think about how you stand to improve the way you engage the world, a sinful world that needs Jesus, even when that may look different in different seasons of life. Okay? And it will, frankly. It will, and that's okay. That's okay. I was reading a book by Larry Osborne, who has some fantastic work in leadership, and he said that one of the most disturbing things, um, and initially I just could not sit with it, but um, he says very candidly, he said, listen, you can roll, you can have every evangelism class in the whole world. You can teach, you can tell people to evangelize. You can let them, you can have them memorize their gospel presentation. And guess what? They're not going to do it. That's what he said. He said, they're just not going to do it. He said, it's not going to happen. So trust me, after 30 years, they're not going to. And I was like, no! That is not true! But it's more... And it, 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 I think at one level, it isn't true. It makes, makes churches a monolith. But it's more true than I'd, than I'd like to admit. It's more true than I'd like to admit. Not all true. You know, it's like kind of true. So I want to talk about, instead of saying, get out there, hey, come on, disciples, go make, here's the game plan, get out there and tell that cashier about Jesus. You know, break. That's the application. I want to do something a little bit more constructive than that. And talk about a few of the reasons people don't do evangelism. I was thinking about it. Why, why do people not do it? It's not like they don't know the gospel. It's not like they don't know the gospel. All right? I can't talk about all the reasons, but I'm going to talk about four. Okay? Four. The first is fear of man. Plain and simple. They'll make fun of me. They'll think I'm stupid. Okay? They'll probably think I believe in all sorts of other silly things and that I'm an idiot. Well, let me give you something to consider. 
Scripture promises that apart from a special working of God, the gospel will be folly to those who are perishing. It promises that. Of course, you know, they're going to think it's folly. They're going to think that you believe something silly. Okay? Like, that's part of the promise. And my question, in light of that is, are you saying that you don't do evangelism because of what the Bible promises about evangelism? That's what it promises. I would say that if you're getting that result in proclaiming the gospel, you should be encouraged that you're actually demonstrating that God's words are true. Do you want to take place in being a part of affirming God's word and his own testimony? Great. There's your opportunity. Okay? So I just, this one right here, I understand, but there's, a, there's some pride issues here. There's some insecurity problems here. But there's, at the end of the day, it's fear of man. It's fear of man. This is guaranteed. This is guaranteed. So you don't have to be surprised if people think that you're believing folly. You're doing something right. You're doing something right according to the New Testament. Okay? Surely that can't be a reason to not do it. Okay? It's expected. And if there is fear, if you've really drank that in, if there's fear remaining, then here's, let me just say, my deep suspicion is that you probably have deeper uh, challenges with insecurity and evangelism actually is not your, your fun, fundamental problem. There are deeper issues. It affects evangelism, but it also affects your other relationships. It affects what you think about your appearance. It affects how you uh, uh, think about all sorts of other things. And you have deep problems with insecurity and identity and what people think about you that control many areas of your life. Evangelism is just one more. So you, you might need to so if you might need to peel the onion a little bit deeper and say, why is it that I care about what people think about me so much? Okay, maybe that what what's you what you need to do to move forward. And then once you do that, not only will things begin to resolve in other aspects of your life, but you'll have confidence to do evangelism. That's the first thing. Fear of man. Do you fear man? Is that why you don't do evangelism? Second, is just, I, I feel like I'm inarticulate, or I feel like I'm immature in Christ. Well, you know, I don't know enough apologetics. You know, I hadn't read any apologetics books, or I don't know how to answer all the questions. You don't have to be an apologist to give a reason for the hope that's within you. And that's what Peter's asking when he says, be able to give a reason for the hope that's within you. You know what that is? It's the gospel. Why are you such a hopeful person? I'll tell you why. That's a fantastic question. Let me tell you why I'm such a hopeful person. Boom! The gospel. Okay? You, you, there is room to grow in terms of how to respond to questions. If you've been in our Sunday school classes, occasionally we've done the tactics uh, um, a Sunday school video. Uh, and they're, hey, I'm all for learning uh, uh, apologetics. I'm all there. I've spent <laughs> years and years and years doing it with the philosophy, philosophy program. But, 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 but being able to give a defense does not mean having to be apologist. Can you, can you talk about what Christ has done in history? And can you talk about what Christ has done in your life? Because those things combined is what gives you hope. And talking about what Christ has done in history in your life is compatible with saying, I don't know, ten times in a row to questions people ask. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done in my life. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Good question. Let me get back to you. I don't know. Good question. Let me get back to you. I don't know. Good question. Let me get back to you. They're not mutually exclusive. You don't have to have answers. The kingdom of God isn't hinged on your response, okay? 
No one's salvation is hanging on the balance whether you've got a persuasive answer to the problem of evil. I promise. So, so don't think that you have to come well-polished and real like a mature believer. and do That's just not the case. You can tell who Jesus is. You can tell how Jesus has worked in your life. That's why you have hope. You can ask somebody, where is your hope lie? How about, how about that for a handoff? That's the second reason. Second reason. What about la- the third reason is lack of unforced opportunities. And so I know this one, man, someone's going to step on some people's toes here. But with all the caveats in the world, uh, the primary ex- expectation for being salt and light and the aroma of Christ to others in the New Testament is not evangelism that essentially boils down to reciting your gospel presentation to the person who's checking you out at Publix or Kroger or wherever you go. Okay, having said that, that's that's one error. Having said that, um, I don't say it's an error. It's just not the pattern. I'm not saying anything's wrong with it. Pattern, not the pattern. Having said that, it's also a mistake that you have to have these really well-established relationships with people before you can ever share the gospel. Okay, you don't have to know so oh, well. You know, you just gotta like after like one or two years, you can share the gospel with somebody. It's like no, that's no. You can share the gospel with someone far, far sooner. Than that, and generally the people who tell me that don't actually share the gospel. It's like uh, we're on year three, brother. <laughs> we're on year three. You haven't shared the gospel yet. Oh, I'm really making sure the relationship is there. You know? Let me give you two practical tips here. Two practical tips here. Uh, the first is take an interest in people and ask them about what they believe about certain things first. What do you make of this? How do you kind of put things together? Listen to all this crazy stuff we hear in the mirror. What do you think about that? Huh? Do you think we're designed for something? Or do you think we just happen to be a certain way? How have you, how have you, when you've thought about that, kind of how you put that together in your head? All of a sudden, why don't you get somebody else talking? Express an interest in them. People like when people are interested in them. Everyone does. And they'll tell you, oh, here's my belief about this. Oh, here's what I think. And here's the thing. After you do that long enough, what are they going to say at the end? Well, what, what do you think? Oh, great that you should ask. Now that I've taken an interest in you, now I understand what you believe. Now you're asking me what I think. And guess what? We're not even three years in. We could be an, an hour in. But we have some common foundation conversationally, don't we? I've expressed an interest in them. I've asked them questions. I've, I've said I've cared about what you believe. And that is going to almost inevitably lead to them asking you. So you do not just have to start going. Because that's one thing that makes evangelism for most people the most awkward. Is they try to start evangelizing with zero interest developed. Zero interest. It's like giving a sales pitch to the person who came to my door this week. I'm getting a new trash can service. like... You could feel, he felt awkward asking me. He could tell I did not care and he didn't even want to be there doing the pitch. Okay? That's the first point. Take an interest in people and then ask him what they believe about certain things. The second is this. From the standpoint of conversational feel, and I learned this from Tim Keller. It works so well, y'all. It works so well. Um, Is it's often far less tense to talk about Christianity in the third person and then identify yourself as a Christian conversationally. 
Okay, so if you remember Minority Report, if any of you saw that movie, they had those like glass screens that they could move stuff around and you could be on either side of the screen. If you didn't see the movie, um, well, that's still in it, okay? That's still what happened in the movie. But when you, sometimes it gets in, in a conversation, uh, it can very quickly shift like me against you. My views, ugh, your views, ugh, and we're kind of duking it out. Talking about Christianity in the third person and then identifying a Christian conversationally as a tactic is so much easier. It's so much easier. It really is. So instead of, well, I think that you're wrong, or I think that this, you say, well, here's the thing. The way the Christian worldview puts things together is that God actually has a design for things. You see, now we're up here talking about Christianity. See that up here? See that up here? Yeah, so on the Christian story of things, man and woman are made to do on the Christian story of things, and then and I am a, and I'm a Christian. In fact, I did I used this with a guy who was a brilliant guy and his brother and just went on and on about talking about the Christian worldview and Christianity. At the very end, you know what they asked me? Well, are you a Christian? I was like, Oh yeah, I'm deeply convicted about these things, that these things are true. And so it went from a me versus them, and one of them came to repent and believe the gospel. The other one uh, has not or has not yet, but but the idea is you can tell talk about the Christian worldview in third person and then kind of step up and endorse that yes, as a matter of fact, I'm a Christian. I'm just telling you, as a conversational tactic, it, it involves far less tension than well, I believe this, which means that you're wrong, and now we're like oh oh if that if that helps you, okay? So that's my second practical tip for lack of unforced opportunities. Okay, and then well, let me just say the final one is there may be some people who you need to genuinely consider places where you need to just encounter more lost people. I go to them, I've got a Christian home, go to a Christian church, I go to a Christian school, we go to the Christian this and that, and we just kind of just have this huge circle of only encountering Christians always ever. You can't be a witness to the unbelieving world if you never even see unbelievers. So it may be that you need to thoughtfully consider, is there a club we can join? What, what can I do? What interest could I take out? How can I... Do something that I'm already doing, but do it alongside unbelievers. Do something. You may need to do that to have a lack of unforced opportunities. Finally, and I'm going to run just a little bit over on this one point. That's okay, though. Finally, the, the, the final objection, why people don't do evangelism, is scorched ground. Scorched ground. I'm borrowing this from Oz Guinness. You feel like everyone around here in Nashville has already heard the gospel a million times. They're already good with Jesus. And they're thinking, yeah, 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 I know, as you're talking. And even they're either they're thinking, what you're saying doesn't apply to them because they're already in. Or they're rolling their eyes inside because of how these Christians behave. And there's a lot of truth to that. That's why, that's why Oz said it. So down here in the South, man, you sow seed on scorched ground. So what do you do if you feel like you're about to sow some seed on some scorched ground? Let me just give you a couple, uh, 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 one particular piece of counsel here. You need to take to heart that you do not have to be a salesman who closes deals. And you need to remember that some people plant, some people water, and God gives the growth. And so if you are talking to someone who's, a, who's just scorched, you might likely need to set and what in your mind might feel like a too modest of a goal, and instead of trying to like get out everything and get to the end and have someone change their worldview in a matter of 15-minute conversation, maybe you have a much more simple, uh, a much more simple and modest goal of correcting something wrong that they said. 
well, I heard you say this. Can you help me understand how you came to believe that? Okay, yeah, that's not my understanding. I'm a, I'm a Christian. You know, I identify as a Christian. Here's, go to church here, all the rest. And um, that's actually just not what the Scripture says about that. Okay? now you So all of a sudden now, you're either taking a pebble and putting it in someone's shoes so they have to walk away with, okay, well, one of my reasons for kind of pushing back on this isn't there anymore. All right? It just kind of annoys them, right? Or to switch metaphors, you're taking a rock out of their backpack. You might have a much more, and then you trust that the next person in the sovereignty of God is going to have another conversation. And there's going to be another conversation. Some people just think evangelism means going all the way down the field, scoring the touchdown, instead of just getting, you know, four-yard run, you know. Another four-yard run, a little seven-yard pass. And finally, eventually, at the end of the day, the ball crosses the goal line and there's a touchdown. But oftentimes, that's not going to be you. If, if that's got to be you, then you, will automatic, you are automatically saying you're going to be a failure in evangelism. Because that's generally not going to be the case. But can you plant and can you water with much more modest goals than being a closer? Than being a closer and pray for growth. At the end of the day, and I'm not saying it, it, it never happens, but the idea that in one conversation, someone is going to go from changing everything about what they believe, who they are, who God is, what's right and wrong, all of it, in the span of one conversation. Okay, I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen, but it very, very rarely happens. And if it happened with me, I would expect someone to go talk them out of it the next day. That's what I would think. That's what I would think. Caveats about the Spirit working notwithstanding. I think people have sometimes an unrealistic expectation of what is being, uh, of how this happens and how people consider these things. So, in close, I hope that, that some of that is helpful and encouraging. I don't want to guilt anyone in evangelism, but we have an incredible Christ to witness to. We may be witnessing on scorched ground, but you heard me talk, but there's, there's still ways to move the needle. There's still ways to do this faithfully, even in Nashville, one of the most churched cities in America. There's still ways to do this. We can still do this faithfully, starting in our homes, making disciples, but also thinking creatively and intentionally about how we can witness to the risen Lord as a faithful body of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray, please. God, we are thankful to have received such a commission and been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Help us to be faithful. Help us to ask questions like, are we faithful? And if not, what can we do to be faithful? I pray no one's heart is condemned. Do they feel any kind of guilt that they shouldn't feel in this area? But instead, this sermon um, and, and these truths are, are opportunities. Opportunities to take inventory and say, what can we do? Even as we think as a church, what can we do corporately to engage? How can we think wisely and be intentional to witness to the saving grace of a risen